in that classic children's story by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we hear the story of four young children who have been evacuated from London in the height of World War II during the Blitz when bombs are raining from the sky, and they are sent off to the house of an old professor. And quite uh, unexpectedly, they find that going through a wardrobe leads them into a magical land known as Narnia. And as they go in, it is interesting because different children have different experiences of Narnia. When Lucy, the youngest, goes in, she discovers this wonderful land, but she learns that it has been subjected to an evil power who calls herself the Queen of Narnia but is actually a witch, and she's made it so that it is always winter and never Christmas. And then she comes back, and her brother Edmund, who if you really want to ever read a story about somebody who's an obnoxious kid, Edmund gets the cake there. Edmund goes in, and Edmund is not as discerning as Lucy. And Edmund meets the white witch, and he is led astray because she can do signs and wonders. She can drop from her vial a little drop into the snow, and suddenly Turkish delight, Edmund's favorite candy, springs up. And out of that, he becomes addicted to this and becomes enthralled to the white witch. And then the rest of the story talks about how Aslan, that great lion who represents Jesus, who is the true king, that there is a battle, and those who belong to Aslan know that he is the ultimate victor, but there is a terrible time of suffering that goes on until the white witch is defeated. Well, this morning we have a passage from Scripture that has some resonance with that story of Lewis, the story that takes place in Mark 13, what is often known as the Olivet Discourse. And once again, as sometimes the lectionary does to us, we are plopped down right into the middle of a conversation that has been going on, where when you first look at it, you say, say what? Uh, But this passage, all of Mark 13, is one discourse. And it starts off with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, and they are looking over across the valley up at Jerusalem, and they see that beautiful temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world, shining in the sun with the golden stone, and they are just stunned by its beauty and by all of the heritage and tradition it represents. And they say to Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings, and they're thankful for all that they represent And then Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. These buildings will be utterly destroyed. And the disciples are shocked, and they ask Jesus a question. And the question they ask is, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? And all of the rest of Mark 13 is the answer to that question. And throughout that answer that lasts the whole chapter, we only get the middle part this morning, there's a refrain. And the refrain that runs through all of it is be on guard. So this morning, I want us to look at a couple of things. I want us to think about what does being on guard have to do with the abomination of desolation? Secondly, how does this passage speak to us about following Jesus today and in the future, 
And thirdly, what can we learn from this passage practically about what does it mean to be on guard? So, first, what does being on guard have to do with the abomination of desolation? Abomination comes from the Greek word delugma, which refers to a foul, detestable, blasphemous thing such as an idol. Desolation is from the Greek root word eremosis and means something that has been stripped, laid bare, made so nothing can ever grow there again. And as we look at this passage where Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, we see that he is quoting from the prophet Daniel. And in the book of the prophet Daniel, which you may not have spent a lot of time with, the abomination of desolation is mentioned not once, not twice, but three times. And that's why there's that little parenthetical, let the reader understand that we're referencing and bringing in everything in the book of Daniel about this. And it is a prophecy about what is going to take place in the future. And the interesting thing about prophecy, and there could be a whole sermon about this that we're not going to do, is that very often in Scripture, you find that passages have something that is a past root, a present fulfillment, and then a future fulfillment. And this passage this morning is one of those. The past root for this has to do with something that happened about 200 years before Jesus' time. And during that period, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple in a time of conflict, brought in a pig, which is unclean in Judaism, and sacrificed this unclean animal on the altar of the temple and profaned and desecrated the temple in an abominable way by that. So that is, that is part of what they are looking back to. And when they hear abomination of desolation, their minds go to that. But Jesus is also talking about a fulfillment that is going to come within the apostles' lifetime. And that is the fall of Jerusalem. As they sit there and they look at these buildings that have been there for generations, the size of multiple football fields, one of the wonders of the ancient world, it is impossible to imagine that those buildings could be destroyed, that they could be laid waste, that all that they represent about the years and centuries of Jewish culture and God's faithfulness could be laid bare and desolate. And yet that is exactly what Jesus says is going to happen. And so, sure enough, as the decades after Jesus' resurrection roll on, unrest grows in the Holy Land. And the first thing that happens is that there is an uprising among the zealots, that Jewish party who believed that Israel needs to become a world power again, and whatever they need to do to make that happen, they're going to embrace And as they do that, the zealots do something which is shocking. They elect Phanias as the 83rd high priest in the line of Aaron. But Phanias is an innovation. All of the high priests before have come from six priestly families that are descended from Levi. But the zealots think the high priesthood is part of the problem, and they need to get rid of it so that the zealots can move on with their agenda. And so they decide, instead of choosing someone from the right family, they're going to cast lots to choose someone else 
to be the high priest. And the great Roman historian Josephus, who wrote in this same period, describes it this way. He says, they undertook to dispose of the high priest office by casting lots for it, creating a counterfeit priest, a horrid piece of wickedness that was sport and pastime to the zealots, but occasioned the true priest who saw their law made jest of to shed tears and to sorely lament the dissolution of this sacred dignity. Murder in the Holy of Holies. The zealots came in and murder happened during this time period in that place that was so holy that the high priest would only go once a year to atone for the sins of the people. Murder, one Jew murdering another Jew in that place. It was horrific. This was in 68 AD. And as if that were not bad enough, shortly after that, the Roman armies advance on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is compassed about with these armies, and the temple is getting ready to fall. And as that happens, the Roman legions come in and they raise the imperial standards, showing the eagle all around the temple. It is a profanation of the temple. And then after that, Jerusalem is laid waste, the Jews are murdered, people are chased into the hills, and it's a time that is absolutely terrible. And for most of us, we don't really know much about that. We just think, oh, Jerusalem fell in AD 70, okay. But it is actually one of the most important events in New Testament history. And the great English bishop J.C. Ryle in the 19th century expands on this. Listen to what he says. One main subject of this passage of our Lord's prophecy is the taking of Jerusalem by the Romans. That great event took place about 40 years after the words Jesus spoke in today's gospel. A full account of it is found in the writings of Josephus. Those writings are the best commentary on our Lord's words. They are striking proof of the accuracy of every jot and tittle of his predictions. The horrors and miseries which the Jews endured throughout the siege of their city exceed anything on record. It was truly a time of oppression, such as not been since the beginning of the world. It surprises some to find so much importance attached to the taking of Jerusalem. They would rather regard the whole chapter as unfulfilled prophecy. However, such people forget that Jerusalem and the temple were the heart of the old Jewish dispensation. When these things were destroyed, the entire old Mosaic system came to an end. The daily sacrifice, the yearly feast, the altar, the holy of holies, the priesthood were all essential parts of this revealed religion, but only until Christ came and then no longer. They were dead. It only remained that they should be buried. And so it was. The Lord Jesus specifically predicts the desolation of the holy place. That great high priest describes the end of the era which had been schoolmaster to bring people to himself. So that time of that prophecy was fulfilled in what happened then in the destruction of the temple. But there is more to it. There is also a future element of this. And Jesus tells his disciples over and over through this passage to be on guard. And it is interesting 
because today I think that is a very apt message for us as well. So let us look at how this passage speaks to us about what it means to follow Jesus today, what it means for us in 21st century Charleston to be on guard today and into the future. And the first thing I would say is that it reminds us that we are in a battle. There are forces of evil and wickedness that are at work in this world. One of the things that we often forget in the comfort of our culture here is that martyrdom of Christians around the world is at an all-time high. There is persecution and death affecting many of our Christian brothers and sisters. We just prayed for the persecuted church recently because of this. So it is important to understand that we are in a battle. People who are in a battle comport themselves differently than people who are going for a walk in the park. If you think you're going on a walk in the park and you actually walk into a battle, you are not going to do very well. You are likely to be hit by fire. You're likely to be injured. You may well be taken out. So it is important for us to realize that we are in a battle. This world is not neutral territory. The second thing that is important is for us to remember that it is vitally important that we are putting our trust in the right things. It is all too easy to put our trust in what this world values. And when we do that and we put our security in these things, we are wedded to this world in a way that is very unhealthy. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The other thing to understand is that following Jesus, we are told, means that there is going to be persecution. It is not something that should be a surprise to us. It should not always be easy to follow Jesus. But it is also a reminder when you look in this passage and you read all those terrible things about pray that it will not be in winter, pray that it does not happen on the Sabbath, pray for the nursing mothers and those who are carrying babies. All of those things remind us that sometimes suffering is part of what God's plan is. And even in that suffering in 70 AD, God used that. Because the Christians did do what the passage says. They fled. They fled from Jerusalem and they were scattered. And the result of that is that they took the gospel of Jesus Christ with them in the places where they scattered. And many years through the centuries later, that is the reason that we are here this morning as believers, because the gospel moved out of Jerusalem. And part of what allowed that to happen was this persecution. It is also a good reminder for us that when we look at these passages that are prophetic in nature, that the purpose of them is not for us to try to read the tea leaves and predict exactly when these things are going to happen and assign who's what in the passage. Uh, One of the interesting things as you go through commentaries from the 19th century and earlier and up through the 20th, every age thinks that this passage is about them. The wars and rumors of wars and the earthquakes and the famines, every age thinks it's about them. And that is probably by design that we all need to be on our guard as those who are seeking to follow Jesus. But it's a reminder to us not to get fixated on trying to predict when Jesus will return. It is very clear at the end of this passage because Jesus says once again that you will not know when the Son of Man is going to come. 
He will come like a thief in the night. It is not something that we will know or be able to predict, but we need to always be ready. We need to persevere. And it's also not an accident that this passage shows up right now in the lectionary, because those of you that have been following the liturgical seasons know that this green is getting ready in a few weeks to turn purple for the season of Advent. And as we move toward Advent, the lectionary moves us toward some of these apocalyptic images about the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. Because, of course, Advent, we celebrate not only Jesus' incarnation, but we also look forward to his coming again in power and glory. So the passage that we have in Hebrews is a great reminder for what this means for us today. It says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So thirdly, what can we learn from this passage practically about being on guard day by day? Firstly, I think one of the warnings that Jesus gives us is an important one in our culture, and that warning is to be on guard against a false gospel, a false gospel, one that denies that Christians should ever suffer or have tribulation, that all God wants for you is to be healthy, wealthy, and successful and self-actualized. The word self-actualized is nowhere in the Gospels. But all too often in our culture, we see this kind of teaching, and we are told by Jesus himself in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. It is part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. And one of the things that is so important about that is that we need to be under sound teaching, where the gospel is proclaimed. And one of the great things about this diocese and this church is there's a strong tradition of gospel preaching here. Part of the symbolism of this high pulpit is that we are under the word of God. We are under its authority. And as those of us who are clergy are bringing the word of God in sermons and teaching, part of your job is to help hold us accountable by knowing the word of God. And if we stray from it, letting us know, and praying that the Holy Spirit will guide us that we might preach and teach in power and in truth. Secondly, there's a great and important warning in here against being too at home in the kingdom of this world. It is all too easy when we live in a comfortable culture where we're surrounded by tradition and beautiful buildings and generations of family to become attached to this world, that our hearts get engaged with the things of this world, and we do not like the idea of having to let go of them. Career, houses, material things, boats, all of that. And yet Jesus tells us in this passage that when things begin to go in the wrong direction, not only do we need to cling to the right teaching of the gospel, 
but we need to be ready to flee. Imagine these disciples who were steeped in the Jewish tradition, thinking that they had to flee out of Jerusalem, the holy city, the place that was full of all of their spiritual and family memories, but they are told to flee, and to flee urgently. The problem is that we can begin to believe that this world is real life. And the actual fact of the matter is that the real world is in here as we are worshiping God and hearing his word. That word that is world that is out there is the one that is passing away. And it reminds me a little bit when you go back in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this great scene where the children have fled to the beaver's house because they hear the white witch is after them. And they come to this house that the beavers have built over generations into this wonderful, cozy, awesome house, and they're there and they feel safe, and then they realize the forces of the witch are coming. And so they start getting ready to flee. And so they're running and getting ready to escape, and Mrs. Beaver is trying to put her house in order first. And she's searching around and messing with this thing and that thing. And finally, they say, what are you doing? And she says, oh, I'm just getting some jam. And one of them turns to her and says, well, we won't need that unless the witch is serving toast. (laughs) And the point is that sometimes we are like that. We are messing about with the jam when we need to be fleeing. We need to be letting go of institutions that have turned against the Lord against other things that have turned away from the truth of the gospel. We need to remove ourselves from error and falsehood and false gospels and false teachers and cling to the word of God and flee in the company of his people. Thirdly, part of what it means to be on guard is to be prepared. One of the things that we see all through this is that being prepared is key to following Jesus. Every day we need to be prepared. We are to be looking and waiting upon the Lord. And that is an active waiting, like a guard who is on duty. Being prepared, think about what the Romans used to do to watchmen who fell asleep while they were on guard. That was punishable by death. But we get lulled into a false sense of security and forget to be prepared. And lastly, we need to guard against error against false teachers, against sacrilege, against relying on anything other than the gospel and the word of God. Because whenever we rely on something other than that, it cannot hold the weight of what it means to be Christian. Part of the ways that God has given us to be able to hold fast against error, to not be led astray like Edmund was, is to be deeply committed to the word of God. When you are deeply committed to the Word of God, it helps shape and form you. Another way is to be deeply committed to worship. When we are worshiping the Lord in the power and beauty of holiness, beauty, truth, goodness, all of that helps shape us and helps protect us from being led astray. And thirdly, the company of the faithful. We are told in Scripture that we are to flee from temptation but we are to do it as we go with those who are pursuing life and godliness. And so it is not an individual battle. Think about how easy it is to pick off somebody that has strayed away from a group. But if you have a whole company together, 
It is very hard to pick off someone. And we need to be that for each other. We need to be the company of the faithful, the band of brothers and sisters who are on mission and following Jesus, and we are not going to be led astray. A great passage from Ephesians sums up all of this. St. Paul is talking to people who are in a time of persecution. And he says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. My friends, Jesus calls us to be on guard. We belong to him. He is our standard bearer and the one who goes before. And he is the one who tramples Satan under his feet through his sacrifice on the cross. We can rejoice in that, but we need to be reminded to be on guard. I would invite you to open your service leaflet and turn again to the hymn that we sang as we came in. And I would like for us to close by looking at the words of the last two stanzas. And I would like to invite you to say that with me as a prayer. So we're going to start with that, and though this world. So please join me in a spirit of prayer. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.